Good evening, everybody, and welcome to episode number 42 of Chat with the Designers. This is your host, George N2APB, along with co-host Joe uh, N2CX. And uh, we are really pleased tonight to bring you another episode of Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive, bi-weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters around the fruited plains of the world. And uh, tonight's episode is concerning the homebrewing of VHF and UHF antennas. And actually, it's uh, kind of everything in between uh, the antenna, well, actually, everything in between the receiving station and uh, the radio that is transmitting. So the transmitter, the, uh, uh, the transceiver, the feed line, the antenna, the propagation to and from the other side and the other side as far as like, why the heck am I not able to hear anything on that VHF? Uh, now, kind of an interesting thing is that uh, um, if you follow our weekly episodes or bi-weekly now, um, you, you'll probably notice uh, that Joe and I essentially talk about topics that are very, of course, interesting to us. Uh, that we are interested in sharing with others, but it's also kind of chronicling an awful lot of our own design and development activities. Um, if uh, if we happen to be working in power measurement, then chances are really good we'll be talking at some point about, uh, uh, I meant to say if we're designing something with, with power measurement um, techniques, uh, chances are we'll be talking about it on chat with the designers. Well, so too for this evening. Um, over the recent uh, month or two, I've been really getting my interest up in uh, getting onto VHF uh, for a variety of reasons that we'll probably get into a little bit tonight. But this um, this episode tonight sort of chronicles my own findings, my own discovery, my own experimentation, as led by my own mentor, Joe N2CX. And uh, he's, he, with his vast experience, has been guiding me in answering my questions and, and, and helping me to understand uh, the whys and wherefores of VHF and UHF operation, which by definition is, is quite a bit different than HF that I've been working for more than a quarter century. And uh, uh, like you, I think you probably have your hands around HF. Um, in the 1 to 30 megahertz region, at least enough to be comfortable in talking about it and with the radios and, and even homebrewing. Well, um, homebrewing VHF on the, on the bench and setting VHF up on, and, uh, through the feed line and uh, transmission and propagation characteristics is a lot different. I knew that, but I just never had a good handle on it. So over the last couple, three, four weeks, I've been um, really kind of working at it and pumping Joe and Joe's been doing his usual job and kind of helping explain things to me. And we thought that it would be really fun to kind of share these findings with everybody here. Um, we, we offer anybody here to, uh, uh, who is already quite into the VHF scene because we don't know everything by any stretch. But if you, if you're really quite into it, please offer your own suggestions or comments relative to the topics we're, we're uh, discussing here, and, and everybody can benefit from it. But lacking that, if you've never really had a chance to get your head around VHF, we thought that this would be a really good uh, a really good time for that because it's like a different world. 
I'm always looking for new areas, new tech, uh, new territories, new new things to learn. I'm not satisfied unless I'm learning something or experimenting and really trying to understand something by actually doing it. And along the way, of course, comes a lot of reference material, a lot of uh, sometimes some some equations and and other types of uh, learning assistance and building on the bench. And that's the kind of stuff that we're sharing here with Chat with the Designers. So tonight, we have a wonderful program, as usual, to talk about the uh, the process of getting to a deeper level of understanding about some fundamentals of ham radio operation. Um, and this time, it's, it's about VHF, UHF, uh, antennas, and propagation. We, over the last couple of years, Joe and I have... Uh, um, when we meet with the local NJQRP club on the, uh, what is it, Joe, the third Saturday of every month, um, in the past we've been bringing some antennas, and we're going to talk about some of those that are made, some of those that uh, I'm, I'm actually working on. Joe, Joe's made a couple of, uh, of uh, uh, let's see, a six-meter antenna at any rate, and along the way some other experimentation with J-poles. We're going to talk about a lot of that stuff. So, Get your pens out, your paper, and uh, uh, definitely utilize the whiteboard that we've collected. Some wonderful, wonderful references at the bottom of the page, per usual. Joe's done a stellar job in pulling together some really good references that help cover the territory, uh, provide good reference later on for you when you want to study up on it on your own, or if you're catching this program by means of the podcast, that's a great way to kind of uh, catch up with it after the fact as far as the material that we're covering. Um, so kind of lean back. And again, I definitely hope that you will chime in. Um, if you're a VHF uh, user, many, many people are kind of like that's, that's oftentimes the entry point for ham radio these days, FM uh, two meter operation. And, and that's just fine. We're going to take a two or three steps beyond that. So um, we, we wish you can, uh, um, Contribute your expertise and knowledge along with uh, what we're going to do here tonight. So, Joe, do you want to kind of kick it off or finish rounding it off here and then kind of launch us into uh, maybe the spectrum? Certainly, George. Thank you. And thank you for your kind words. Yes, old guys, unfortunately, accumulate lots of info and uh, experience over the years. <clears throat> the radio, um, start off the radio spectrum. Um, there's just a picture of it here to... Uh, to get some headspace adjustment, uh, but I'll talk through it. Uh, of course, the radio spectrum starts off with VLF, goes through LF and MF. Then it gets to HF, where we're going uh, 30, uh, 3 to 30 megahertz, um, which is where much of the HF uh, amateur radio operation is. Then VHF and UHF span 30 megahertz to um, 3 gigahertz, um, with much of the operation concentrated in the VHF range, particularly 6 and 2 liters, um, for a number of reasons, but uh, stuff's usually cheaper and more available there. Um, first thing to do when you're trying to consider setting up a station or operating on VHF and UHF is um, deciding what it is you want to do. Um, now, as George pointed out, many hams these days, uh, with the uh, elimination of the need for Morse, Many hams get into um, uh, voice operation as their first uh, 
operating activity in the ham radio. And uh, the, the cheapest, easiest way to do that is to buy either a handheld uh, radio or a mobile radio and uh, operate through repeaters. Um, repeaters give you the ability, we'll talk about more about it later, but they give you the ability to get um, a little bit of range. Um, whereas if you're just going handheld to handheld or mobile to handheld, you're limited to uh, generally um, you know, more than 10 miles or so. But um, repeaters give you the ability to, um, to go out to 20 or 30 miles radius, uh, even with a simple, uh, simple radio. Uh, to segue to the other extreme uh, of weak signal communications that um, dyed in the wool experimenters get into, they're generally um, fixed point-to-point -point operation. They're not portable or mobile. Um, they go from a given location to another location where another ham is, but they're fixed. So they can they can augment their equipment and their antennas with uh, something a little more. Um, and they use, uh, certainly some of them use very enhanced um, rigs, antennas, and uh, much higher power. Whereas handhelds are limited to um, perhaps five watts, both for battery consumption and for personal safety reasons. Um, mobiles might go to uh, 25 or 50 watts. Uh, the weak signal guys, the guys operating from their base stations, <clears throat> go up to uh, several hundred or a thousand watts. In fact, uh, much of the uh, much of the uh, operation that's reasonably casual for weak signal stuff is uh, 100 watts or so. Um, single sideband or CW, also some data modes, particularly for uh, enhanced uh, coverage and uh, the guys who get into moon bounce uh, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit more later generally have at least 500 watts um, very good um, transceiver um, or uh, transverter um, maybe even some uh, gain uh, a preamp on their antenna and a beam antenna absolutely with a, um, a gain of 15 dB or more um, it's not uncommon to have 20 or 30 dB for, uh, for the real hot power stations because there's a lot of loss when you bounce a signal off the moon. Uh, I'm going to take a break and see if there are any questions so far. I, it sounds like someone might be, uh, someone have their push to talk uh, pressed. I hear some, uh, uh, some noise in the background. Any questions, please? That, that okay. was me. That was me, Joe. Um, but I wanted to give anybody else a, a bit of a break here, too, to, to come on in. I, I just wanted to underscore this first section. We did kind of a, a, a gross um, categorization, I guess, of the different kinds of communications on VHF and UHF, and it's very fast and high level. But I think if you kind of break it down, you'll identify maybe where you are. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to explain a couple of them. Of course, Everybody, I think, is pretty much familiar with uh, FM communications, and, and probably many of us have those little HTs, handy talkies, that are shown there with, uh, with a small ducky on it, rubber ducky antenna uh, of some sort. Really quite inefficient, but more uh, usually pretty e um, enough to hit the repeaters. And I think that we're going to talk about power and propagation, and, and those HTs can have small power, but enough to 
and inefficient antennas to but enough to get to the repeaters, which is just fine. And the same too with a mobile rig. Um getting uh getting an FM and uh you know programming your offset for a repeater either plus or minus six hundred uh uh kilohertz is going to um help you get there onto the onto the repeater and operating in uh um in, in that particular way. Other operation is for simplex operation and operating from the same frequency. One forty six dot five two is a uh, is a common long time simplex calling frequency if you will. And if you're on a road, you'd be able to call that frequency, and chances are others on the road might be monitoring that, and you'd be able to have a, a quick contact or maybe even some uh, travel guidance along the way. Um, when it comes to weak signal communications, we kind of grouped it into this this category because if you're not, if you don't have a regular SCAD or a regular repeater that you're dealing with on FM communications, um, many VHFers and end UHFers operate for the purpose of weak signal communications just see how low you can go um, or how low can you copy um, using SSB or CW and uh, uh, as, as we put there it's a fixed point-to-point -point operation and um, oftentimes it's contesting and oftentimes it's mountaintopping and as Joe is getting into for um, uh, satellite type of operation and also moon bounce and, and these are the areas that I'm particularly interested in getting into. I'm I'm uh, I'm not satisfied with just kind of pressing a mic and, and talking to somebody over a repeater. I would much rather be kind of trying to push the envelope of of operating on the air, either with the equipment or listening and transmitting protocol pro procedure uh, to use better the um, the radio and, and better my radio skills uh, in this radio sport that we're doing. And uh, sometimes the challenges of needing higher power, which is kind of where I'm at right now, you know, small 10 watt, uh, 10 watts out of a mobile rig is not sufficient. So um, I had been on the, on the lookout for a, a pretty good VHF radio and, and I found one thanks to a very good friend. And we have, um, uh, also, a, uh, a New Jersey QRP uh, member, he'll always be a New Jersey QRP club member, but he's no longer in the area. Mark Franco, N2UO, um, is a very prominent uh, home brewer of all of his equipment. He makes everything himself. Um, he's not satisfied with commercial gear, and he specializes in VHF and UHF uh, radios and antennas. And he's providing a lot of guidance for me and some others in this area relative to uh, weak signal mode and moon bounds or earth, moon, earth type of transmissions. But those are the general categories of uh, FM transmission uh, over repeaters or uh, direct contact via um, um, a single sideband or, or even or, simplex uh, on uh, FM simplex but using weak signals because it's point-to-point -point and for the reasons that we're going to get into. Joe? Joe? Hello? Yeah, Rick, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to add that um, <clears throat> many people don't require any more equipment to move from HF to uh, VHF because more and more transceivers these days include six meters at least uh, in their frequency domain, and therefore you need nothing more in at least a... a uh, 
a built-up area uh, than a simple dipole for six meters on the top of your house and you're in business. Oh, you're absolutely right. And I thought you were also going to mention that some of the modern radios today um, are all band, all mode, all multi-band from HF, VHF, and UHF. They tend to be the more capable, expensive uh, commercial ones. But if you're lucky enough to have such a rig, you know, I mean, it's a matter of switching bands in a radio, switching antenna uh, feed lines that you might be driving. And, of course, as you said, making sure that you have an antenna up for that particular band. And for six meters, which is kind of an in-between it's an in-between band. Uh, we talk about HF only going up to 30 megahertz usually. Um, six meters being 50 megahertz is is less than VHF of two meters, but a little bit more, a little bit higher than HF. So Joe and I, for the purpose of a discussion tonight, we kind of group six meter into the VHF section since not it's not quite as common, and some of the principles of, of propagation. And the caution that one needs to do when handling feed line and, and antenna uh, gain uh, starts to come in play, even with the uh, the six meter antennas. Uh, Joe, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thanks for the uh, thanks for that note, Rick. Indeed, uh, it is a way that many people um, have the ability to get into VHF very easily. And uh, George, the reason I didn't uh, realize it was you was that I was scrolling down to the bottom of the list and and your uh, blue uh, blue light special was up above the top of the screen so I didn't realize it was you trying to break in um, alright I'm going to just briefly touch on propagation now HF most of us rely on ionospheric propagation but uh, uh, go ahead someone trying to break no yes not um, VHF the predominant uh, form of propagation is uh, line of sight, um, where the, the radio waves uh, travel from, uh, from one end of the path to the other, basically uh, the same way light would. <clears throat> there is a rule of thumb, which is approximate, that really the radio horizon is 30% uh, um, more than the, uh, the light horizon. Um, radio waves will get out farther, and, and there are things you can do to calculate that. But basically, it's line of sight, which means if you're using a handheld or a mobile, you're only a couple feet above ground, the radio horizon is pretty close, and uh, the signal doesn't go very far with uh, unaided uh, propagation, uh, which is why repeaters have uh, tall antenna towers. They're either on very tall uh, towers or they're, they're on mountains so that their line of sight is extended quite a bit more, significantly more. Uh, and you can use gain antennas to get a little more range going to repeaters uh, if you want to, if, if there's a, uh, a distant repeater. But uh, that's less common than, uh, uh, than you, might, you might think. There are other modes. One of the more common modes for propagation at VHF is what's called uh, tropospheric ducting. And our, uh, there's actually a, pay, a picture of uh, tropospheric ducting a little bit down on our uh, white page. It happens when um, there's a temperature inversion in the air, in the atmosphere, where there's a layer of warm air above cool air that is close to the Earth. It happens uh, during uh, weather fronts, 
or um, quite often near large bodies of water. Those uh, who live along the Great Lakes or along the uh, sea coasts quite often see um, temperature versions um, often in the evenings. I know I've um, been down the Jersey Shore and, and uh, there is indeed ducting where you can see New York TV stations with a simple antenna um, during the evening because of the ducting and sometimes Baltimore. Um, in addition, uh, those along the Great Lakes have uh, similar conditions, which are temporary, but um, it, it reflects VHF and acts like a like a uh, duct to um, bounce the uh, like a low ionosphere to bounce the signal for some distance, and this can go out to uh, as much as several hundred kilometers. Kind of fun when it happens. Uh, transitory, but it's fun. The military uses something called tropospheric ducting. We have a picture of that too. Um, that is a little more sophisticated. Not many hams have the ability because you need um, uh, tens of kilowatts and antenna gains of uh, 20 to 40 dB, which is beyond most of our, uh, well, first of all, it's illegal power-wise. But there, they, uh, there's a little bit of scatter off the troposphere, um, the lower la layer of the, of the uh, atmosphere. And if you bang enough power on it, you can uh, you can bend quite a bit over the uh, horizon. There, it's characterized by pretty stable characteristics, pretty stable propagation uh, out to several hundred kilometers. And in fact, the antennas are aimed, the military particularly likes it because um, it's fairly directional. The antennas at both ends of the path are aimed at the same little patch of uh, sky and um, the signal doesn't, doesn't bounce much uh, past the uh, um, the patch that they're aimed for. So pretty good for security. Uh, then there are other atmospheric modes, which uh, like the, uh, like on the HF, there are periods of uh, ionospheric activity that also reflect the signals. These are dependent, um, they're seasonal and also of course dependent on sunspots. Same as, um, same as at uh, HF. Um, there can be, um, uh, even in low sunspot activity times, there can be some tropospheric, some ionospheric uh, propagation. And it happens over um, large distances sometimes. Even six meters can be uh, um, working um, 10,000 miles or more. It, uh, it can be really amazing. But it's tough to predict. Um, there are sites online where you can look and see what the current conditions are. And uh, the contesters try to do that. Another type of propagation, which is really uh, line of sight, is uh, meteor scatter, where when meteors enter the atmosphere, they make a uh, an ionized trail up um, basically in the ionosphere. And you can bounce signals off that. It can be done with um, relatively low power, 100 watts, generally use uh, beam antennas. And... Uh, you get a range of as much as uh, 1,000, 1,200 miles. It doesn't happen frequently, but uh, it does happen, and particularly during meteor showers, there's some uh, dyed-in-the-wool guys who make contacts uh, pretty regularly that, that way. And then finally, of course, as Joe mentioned, uh, George mentioned, there's the moon bouncer, Earth, moon, Earth. We actually bounce signals off the sky, off the moon. We have some pictures of... Uh, some typical antennas there, 
um, and a, a uh, moon bounce uh, um, notional diagram showing a uh, transmitted signal from the from the Earth bounced off the moon and a very weak signal coming back to the Earth. And um, just to impress what it takes to do this, there's a picture of a uh, a multi element a multi um, multi Yagi array. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Look like um, 20, probably 20 element Yagis, all phased together and uh, arranged on a uh, common structure to point to the moon. And then there's uh, Mark Franco uh, with his um, 12-foot dish he made in his backyard. That is, uh, that's the sort of antennas you need. For the simple repeater stuff, it's line of sight. Use um, basically what you got in your rig or a small antenna on, um, on your vehicle. Um, if you want to get into the weak signal modes and pick up some of the other uh, propagation modes, um, generally the, uh, it's not line of sight, and um, you get into more sophisticated, uh, sophisticated antennas and uh, other uh, equipment techniques. Any, uh, any questions or comments? Go ahead, I, re George. I remember when, uh, when growing up in the Rochester, New York area, um, that's kind of when I became radioactive and the, uh, of course the, even then I started off in repeaters too, as, as people do today. And there was always a big cry of, uh, you know, inversion, inversion. And that was, uh, kind of like what you had mentioned, Joe, I mean, around the great lakes where you've got uh, big bodies of water, there was a greater, it seemed to be a greater tendency to have that inversion layer, that area of warmer air which is sitting above the cooler air on the ground and it provided that ducting opportunity primarily for two meters um, six meters was a bit beyond the reach of many of us back in the uh, oh gosh in the early 70s so um, it was a it was a two meter type of thing that we took advantage of but in even in the earlier those earlier days when six meters was was really um, being explored if you will there's a lot of articles and such in QST that described uh, the phenomenon. And if you go back and you look over some of the past issues, I think you'd find uh, some really interesting reading um, about that. And specifically, uh, as far as Earth, Moon, Earth, and Mark uh, Franco's antenna, the dish that he made there, he presented that at uh, Atlanticon 2006. And it's all home, uh, home brew. All the parts there were obtained from Home Depot. And he took particular pride in uh, in hand um, creating that entire antenna structure. I'm gonna I'm gonna have that one. I'm gonna be making that one. I haven't told my wife yet or the neighbors, but I think uh, Mark has given some clues as far as how he. You notice it has casters and he can wheel it around as necessary when not in use and kind of put it behind trees and by the side of the house and whatnot. It's very lightweight, so it's not affected too much by the uh, extreme weathers. And um, if you're really interested in, in again, Mark's recanting, recounting of, of uh, his experiences in building that, there are two MP3 files. I'm not sure if I put the link on that at the bottom of the page. I will if not. Two uh, interview, two, uh, a two-part interview that uh, somebody um, did with Mark. And it's a, just a wonderful, informative uh, type of discussion, not just about the antenna construction, but also about... Um, propagation 
and that's um, I believe that's that's a 1.2 gigahertz, a 23 centimeter uh, antenna. And Mark was talking about the uh, characteristics of that. You know, 23 centimeters is roughly about 10 inches in wavelength. So you've got a wavelength. You know, picture some of those those wave fronts that are shown on the uh, on the white white page whiteboard, and you got about a a 10 inch um, waveform and it's hitting the surface of a moon which is very irregular and it bounces back in all sorts of different ways and hearing that kind of a signal coming back is a lot different than this the uh, the single tones that we often hear in HF but it's a fascinating area of weak signal um, propagation and weak signal operation that uh, if, if you're if you're looking to get rekindled with with ham radio and and kind of do some experimenting just weak signal gen, uh, weak signal activity is is, uh, is a fun thing to get into. Now, let's get a bit into uh, polarization, and uh, uh, this is a this is a bit confusing at first, but it's from a simplistic perspective you can see that uh, generally the signals are going to be transmitted um, as a you can think of it as a sine wave or a a vertically polarized wave if it's being transmitted from a vertical antenna. So the E-field, the electric field, which is what we're receiving in our receivers, oscillates in a vertical manner, in a wavefront that is vertical. Uh, the pictures that we've shown there in green and lighter green show the companion magnetic field, um, which is not necessarily um, of interest to this discussion, but it happens to be at 90 degrees from it. So the darker green is the polarized waveform indication for vertical um, transmissions as in the top of the diagram when you transmit from a vertical antenna on the left and the signal kind of goes in oscillate, vertical oscillations over to the receiving antenna on the right. Those red lines are the receiving and transmitting antennas. Similarly, as you might think, from a whole um, from an antenna that is uh, horizontally oriented with respect to the ground or earth, um, the E-field is transmitted as an oscillating waveform in the horizontal plane. And the antenna best for receiving the uh, horizontal transmitted, horizontally transmitted uh, E-field or transmission is going to be da -da -da -da, a, a horizontally oriented receiver antenna, receive antenna. Now, there's all sorts of uh, interesting things that kind of come in, in some standards or, or let's say some usual practices some that are followed as far as, uh, for example, FM communications are usually going to be vertically polarized for a reason that maybe Joe is going to explain in a moment. And then weak signals, weak signal transmissions are usually going to be horizontally polarized in a manner uh, that Joe will also explain. So, Joe, let's get a little bit into the polarization aspects of wh why one polarization over another, and what happens if you transmit in one polarization but receive in the other. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, yeah good introduction. Uh, well, the answer to why um, traditionally uh, some stuff is vertically polarized and why others is horizontally polarized is, is rather simple. Um, for handheld radios, something you're holding in your hand, or something you're mounting on a car, a vertical antenna is, is the most practical thing. Um, so they, the, uh, uh, 
FM communications, mobile communications tend to use vertical antennas, so those uh, signals are vertically polarized, whereas at uh, fixed locations at home, horizontal antenna is more practical to put up something that is um, at right angles to your tower so that it doesn't interfere with the tower. So the uh, the weak signal stuff, the uh, operation from home stations, is generally horizontally polarized. So very simple reason for that. Um, what polarization does is, um, one of the effects of polarization is that if you go cross, in other words, if you uh, transmit a vertically polarized signal, the guy at the other end has a an horizontally polarized antenna, there's going to be attenuation. And uh, a rule of thumb is that the attenuation is something like 20 dB. There's a mismatch between um, uh, the wave trying to uh, be in, induced in the uh, antenna of the other polarization. Um, if you think of polarized sunglasses, polarized sunglasses have... Um, a film in there that lets light through with either vertical or horizontal polarization. And they're that way because most reflected light uh, glare from lakes or from land or whatever else tends to be horizontally polarized. So polarized sunglasses have uh, allow vertically polarized light through, uh, which allows you to see scenes clearly and not be, uh, not be bothered by uh, um, the glare, which has the other polarization. You can really see the difference if you hold two pairs of sunglasses up and rotate, look through the lenses of both uh, glasses, rotate one of them 90 degrees, you'll see that there's great attenuation of the light that comes through. And indeed, uh, it's a problem with the potential problem with liquid crystal displays because they use polarization to uh, switch their um, um, the intensity of the light coming through there from light to dark by switching polarization. So polarized sunglasses can uh, can really impede trying to uh, read a liquid crystal display. Um, there are some discussions. We have a link uh, on EHAM about um, uh, cross-polarization loss. As I say, rule of thumb is it's about 20 dB, which is 1 100th power or something over... Uh, 3S units, so it's significant. And there's also, um, we have a link at the at the very end in our references section, which talks about, um, which shows, it's a YouTube video that um, shows a, a fellow listening to signals with a, a vertical and a horizontal antenna, different polarizations, and you can see a significant difference in uh, in it which shows that there is quite a bit of loss. Um, George, well, first of all, let me ask if there are any questions on uh, on any of this. Kind of a funky subject, but uh, it is important. Okay, uh, hearing done. Why don't, uh, George, why don't you pick up, um, pick up the issue of height with antennas uh, and talk about that a little bit. And you also might want to mention something I had neglected. I didn't give any detail on... Uh, um, satellite propagation, satellite usage, you might want to fill in on that because you certainly have some experience with it. Okay, Joe, thanks. And yeah, um, oh gosh, there was going to be something I was going to mention as far as polarization too, but uh, um, it'll come back. Uh, 
height height is 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 probably the more important one of the more important uh factors of uh operating in VHF i think if you were to categorize them probably in the order of importance in my mind at any rate would be uh uh the height of the antenna and the quality of the coax that feeds the antenna and the Joe had mentioned the, the propagation is primarily line of sight and that's the whole issue line of sight and and uh line of sight with earth moon earth i mean you got to see the moon in order to try to hit it and it kind of an interesting side note here is listening to mark's uh podcast of the interview uh, for his EME operation, he says when the when the moon just is a, just appears over the horizon, uh, ascending, and you start seeing it. Of course, it seems a little bit bigger because of the uh, magnifying effect of all the atmosphere that you're looking for. He says, but you cannot aim your antenna, your dish, or your yagis directly at that uh, image because that image really is also being bent, um, and the the moon, the visible moon, is uh, being falsely represented, and you would miss the moon if you pointed your antenna toward it, which sort of tells me that um, perhaps the obvious, but the radio waves are are not affected by the atmosphere um, that uh, such as light is, and the radio beam, if you have a narrow enough beam, um, which is very important for Earth Moon Earth communications, you would be missing the moon. Anyways, just a side point there. Satellites are sort of the same. You, you, you need to be able to, the, the satellite has to be within um, acquisition. Um, and uh, if you look at satellites, there's usually a, a circle or an oval on the Earth that represents its acquisition um, uh, ability. It depends on the kind of satellite you're dealing with uh, in general, but um, if it's a satellite in the early days, when I was working uh, the satellites, the satellites would be traveling um, overhead in a path that was non-stationary. So you'd have to track and point your antenna directly at the end, um, at the satellite in order for the power that you had to effectively make contact with the transponder on the, the satellite. And, of course, the AS-L, azimuth and elevation control of the rotors was fun back then. Because we didn't have any fancy microcontrollers and, and such that had all of that programmed into the controller. And sort of like uh, pointing telescopes these days are easy because uh, the Celestron and other types of uh, uh, scopes have the auto tracking built in. Back in the early days, we didn't have that. So I had I had a lot of fun programming up uh, some algorithms in, into an, um, an Altair computer. And then ultimately a, an Apple II computer, and then interfacing that computer to the azimuth and elevation rotor, uh, the rotors that were on my antennas, and that helped point right at the uh, at the satellite. And similar um, satellites are way up there, so you you generally need to have higher power in order to um, reach the satellite, but you don't want to overpower it. These days, it's it's uh, you don't need too much power to get them, but you need to have pretty good receive antennas in order to receive uh, the signals coming back. So height-wise, height is the more important thing because of line of sight is the characteristic for UHF and VHF uh, types of transmissions. If you can't see it, or if you 
If you know that there's something in between, such as a mountain or lots of foliage on trees during the summertime, um, your signal is either not going to make it or it's going to be tremendously uh, attenuated, and you're just not going to be able to have the receiving station receive your signal. Now, there's a really cool program. Joe, Joe found this one. He and I have been, you know, just a bit of a background, of course, Joe is in Jersey. I'm in Maryland. And uh, we have for years been trying to find the right uh, band, mode, antenna bearings, um, transmission or, uh, power, and all sorts of things that would allow us to have some type of communications on the bands, on the HF uh, bands, and really haven't been too successful. And I think there's a, uh, with this program called Radio Mobile, Radio Mobile Website, um, and we have it highlighted in our references and also in section three for height. It, uh, you enter some basic data about your two, the endpoints of the communications that you'd like to have. On the left hand side is Joe's, uh, altitude, or, yeah, altitude two, uh, longitude, latitude, and kind of transmission power that he's doing. And, uh, on the right hand side is mine. And based on the frequency that you specify, it tells you, um, pretty clearly in, in a graphical mem uh, manner, what the what the path is going to be, and if if you were to be establishing communications, as you can see in this photo here, uh, the green line represents um, probably the minimum frequency, uh, the minimum angle at which we would have to uh, um, transmit or bounce the signal off of, and generally it, it doesn't look too optimistic here on 30 megahertz. Uh, JJ. Uh, Joe Jessen, KC2VGL, who's online here too, is up in Hamilton, uh, New Jersey, which is closer, it's up uh, near Trenton. And even Joe would have, uh, Joe and JJ would have a hard time communicating for some other reasons. But using these, these programs, you're able to plot and see kind of what the path would be, um, what the impediments or the... Uh, what kind of obstructions would be in the way. There's a, another view of that, uh, maybe it's the same program, not sure, but uh, Joe Joe plotted, uh, it looks like a, a weather map around Philadelphia. Now Joe's kind of close to Philly, is where that stick pin is. It's labeled, the map I'm looking at, or the, the plot is, look, is called 30 megahertz prob propagation probabilities from N2CX based on terrain and elevation. Kind of looks like rain, you know, the rain weather, but the green area is indicative of um, greater probabilities of success at 30 megahertz. And that shows the range that Joe would have with line of sight, um, I guess it's line of sight, for his location. And uh, it starts turning yellow at the perimeter, at the uh, edges of that area, which indicates, of course, it starts getting sketchy. And... Um, and the map below that is uh, the propagation around uh, his QTH for 146 megahertz, or, of course, two meters. In both cases, you would see that uh, communications, even as close as between his location in uh, Gloucester Township um, up to Hamilton, where JJ lives, is not that great. For reasons I'm not too sure of, maybe it's... Uh, a lot of trees and such that would get in line of sight. 
and which kind of illustrates the point. And I'll turn it back to Joe. But it illustrates the point that the higher you go, the better. I mean, there is there's if you can reach up high, and high might be like 50 feet. It's it's not horrendous, but if you can get up to a bit of a, a bit of a height, you can get a, out and about from the general obstructions and the uh, the gently sloping lands with the larger trees and leaves that tend to absorb and thus obstruct your transmissions and have more reliable communications on a wider basis. Um, Joe, you might want to mention, too, uh, kind of like the balance. Oh, we're going to get into that with the repeaters. The balance of power versus, uh, in the old days, as far as not having PL. And uh, if you had high power in order to reach a fire repeater, chances are you were also triggering a lot of different repeaters that were also closer, but within uh, visible sight and closer. But anyways, the propagation is all important. Visible line of sight, well, sometimes it's not quite visible. I mean, but if it's line of sight with enough power, you should be able to get to the other, uh, the receiving station. Um, but sometimes, too, if you're not high enough, the trees and gentle slopes of the terrain will impede your uh, ability to do that. Okay, thank you, George. Yeah, um, good introduction. I wanted to just mention one one thing that I found accidentally while fiddling around here, I accidentally clicked on the um, uh, the entry in the uh, box that shows the operators here. I clicked on John ZL1AZS, and sure enough, he has a picture there. Um, nobody else appears to have a picture. I didn't know he could do that. So if you click on his um, his line there in the TeamSpeak, you'll see what a Kiwi looks like smiling at you under a, a peaked cap. Um, the propagation program I mentioned, okay, <laughs> Alan says he has a picture on his, too. I'm going to have to figure out how to do that. Um, as George mentioned, that the Radio Mobile website is handy for, for doing, uh, for just uh, trying to check the possibilities for propagation. George and I had been looking at, um, as he mentioned, uh, what would be um, the minimum we could get by with. We looked at six meters, and it didn't look too practical. But I cranked in the information for 30 megahertz for a line of sight path to the program. And the first picture shows what it would be. And indeed, the, uh, the program knows the or looks up the uh, on the web, looks up the uh, terrain uh, between us two and uses some fancy math to calculate the, uh, the diffraction over that rough surface uh, between the two and tries to estimate uh, at least for uh, um, 30 megahertz, as I've chosen here, with antennas that are about 25 feet above ground and running 10 watts of power, uh, it says that um, the predicted received signal is um, 2 microvolts, 2.3 microvolts. So that's entirely doable. That's uh, practical. The pictures below um, that we show uh, are just two snapshots of something else. They don't show the terrain. What they show, what they show is a uh, question. Stephen, uh, VK2RH, uh, you have your press, push to talk depressed? Or perhaps you're on box. Uh, you were coming through there. Do you have a question? No, I suppose not. At any rate, um, uh, go ahead, John. 
Uh, yeah, um, I just have a question about um, uh, the line of sight, um, what would you call it, propagation of a VHF signal. Um, let's say, for example, you've got two Mount Everests. Um, provided you can see them, um, one can see the other one, um, is, what happens with distance? and VHF signals. Uh, do the signals degrade over distance or is there no problem getting that far? Well, um, they, they do degrade with distance. You know, any radio wave tends to spread out so the energy is, is uh, dissipated. Um, practically speaking, uh, for reasonable distances, I know um, fellows who've operated airplanes um, in my neck of the woods, who get up to five or ten thousand feet, even with ten watts, they have a strong signal up to at least a hundred miles or so. Go much beyond that, it would take more power. Okay, thank you. And and indeed, uh, uh, there have been some ducting instances between uh, California and Hawaii with some super ducts where people with 50 watts have been able to communicate with Hawaiian stations um, on VHF, particularly two meters. Okay, um, the first picture, as I mentioned, um, from the radio mobile just shows us with fixed locations with reasonably high antennas. And it shows that at the distance, which is 111 kilometers, we have usable signals, a little weak, but usable. The other two pictures were just to show for mobile operation from my location to a mobile station, the coverage on 30 megahertz, which is the low end of VHF, and two meters. Just to show that with low antennas, of course, you get a shorter distance. But as frequency goes up, the distance increases also. Just some uh, rule of thumb, um, um, back of the envelope type stuff to give a visual indication of what the, uh, um, the loss of um, coverage for decent signals is uh, if you're going between uh, mobile stations or from a fixed location to a mobile. With the lower antennas, you get uh, poorer coverage, and at higher frequency, you get poorer coverage. Uh, George, do you want to uh, talk about the repeaters and um, go from there? Sure. Um... Yeah, I guess... Um... I guess we ought to move along quickly, and so we, I don't think we're going to spend too much time on here, but, uh, um, oh, I didn't put the good repeater reference in for the ARRL. Go to, I'll try to do that, but meanwhile, of course, go to the ARRL. It's a wonderful resource for uh, uh, information like this, and they have a good repeater reference guide. In other words, um, you know, when I, I came back on to uh, VHF again, I needed to know what were the frequencies and offsets and locations of the different repeaters in my area so I could program them into my uh, my rig and, and, and HT and be able to access it. So you want to be able to do that too. And today, um, many, uh, if not most, of the repeaters have PL tones or uh, PLP. Uh, Joe, what does PL stand for? Phase lock? Private line. It was a GE trademark, but it's been genericized. Yeah, I knew that. So um, private line tones, PL tones, uh, sub-audible tones like uh, less than 200 hertz such that uh, 
a given tone is required to key up a transmitter, uh, a, a repeater, and uh, only that repeater. So if you have two transmitter, two repeaters, if you have two repeaters that are within hitting distance of your of your uh, signal, then when you key your transmitter, you would bring them both up, which is generally not a good thing to do, at least for one of them. One of the repeaters is always going to be brought up and you'll be transmitting on it. So what we've done these days now is uh, using a, a given uh, PL sub-audible tone associated with each repeater, and you would have a sub-audible tone programmed in your rig for the repeater that you want to bring up, and you would indeed bring up the one that you bring up uh, that that you want because uh, it has a decoder that can detect that subtone and it knows that it's the intended target for transmitting um, and uh, the repeater that you're also would in the without a tone would bring up has a has a decoder on there that doesn't see the tone that it needs, which ostensibly would be a different tone, of course. So you want to check the repeater guide for that information and program your rig appropriately, and that's uh, that's kind of a necessary thing these days. Um, the There's some linked repeaters. We're not going to get into it too much, but there, there's kind of a game that one can play as far as accessing one repeater and having that transmission through the repeater bring up another repeater and that one bring up another repeater and in other words you link across different repeaters and your signal your transmit signal hops across multiple repeaters and uh, some people are able to transmit or communicate on great distances in this manner i'm not familiar with the technique i don't think i'm, I'm not sure if joe is but bottom line is that there's that that's possible and you could probably look up that that subject and topic and find out how it's done and uh, it's yet another aspect of the hobby that that's, that's kind of fun. Um, feed line, feed line decoupling. Oh, feed line decoupling. Joe, why don't you take this one here because it's really important to uh, to be able to handle the feed line connection to the antenna to make sure that you're radiating through your antenna and not the rate, uh, not the uh, feed line. Okay, certainly. Yeah, just a quickie uh, on this one. Um, the basic idea is that. Many of the um, many of the antennas used for VHF or dipole antennas, and uh, you you want to be sure that uh, since dipoles are generally balanced, you want to be sure that uh, you're not coupling energy into the uh, um, into the outer shield of the feed line. So you use either uh, some sort of feed line balance, a, a, a stub, a gamma match, or other. Uh, balanced to unbalanced structure on the antenna itself. Or you can also use a choke balance, which is either a wound up coil of coax or uh, even one of the toroidal choke balance that we discussed earlier. The downside of not having this is that you're wasting energy. You're not putting out the uh, energy through the antenna. It can randomly go out through the antenna feed line and uh, be wasted, not going in the direction you want. And particularly with a beam antenna, um, you're not getting the directional pattern and the gain of the antenna that you want. So it's important to have some means of uh, coupling the energy to the antenna that provides the decoupling between the uh, feed line and the uh, and the antenna. If you look at George's picture uh, of his um, Moxon antenna later, you'll see uh, a choke 
ballon that's made of um, coil up feedline. That's the simplest way to go. Good for a um, single band antenna. Becomes problematic for uh, multi band antennas. Uh, now we want to talk about power, George. Yeah, we're going to go through quickly on, on the power and safety and, and feed line loss. But uh, in general, the power levels, I, I categorize them. And, and this is by no means any kind of an authoritative standard that we have, but just grouping them into the low power categories for HTs. You know, uh, you know that uh, it's low power for a couple of reasons. It, it, minimize, it maximizes the battery life when you're transmitting lower power and just enough to reach the repeater. And you don't, you're not trying to do long distance communications with a with a poor antenna on a little handheld unit, and also uh, it, it's something I call brain fry. I'll get to that in a moment. But uh, you're not transmitting RF close to your head, a lot of RF close to your head. Medium power, I kind of put into the category of. Uh, um, I'm not sure what I was thinking about that with satellite rigs, but satellites don't need an awful lot of power these days. So, you know, 10, 20 watts can usually, with a right, with the correct uh, gain antenna, pointed directly at the satellite uh, up, and uh, it, it, 10 to 20 watts is usually sufficient. Moderate power is, is what you see a lot of times in mobile rigs. Um, it's enough power to get through an inefficient antenna, a small inefficient antenna on your car, to hit a... Uh, to hit a repeater, and that's usually how how a mobile mobile rig is used. Higher power comes along in the in the range of uh, the base stations that are trying to do you know long distance uh, either long hit long distance repeaters or weak signal propagation VHF contesting um, starts to to need a little bit higher power. And by the way, 100 watts is usually what you're going to find in those new the newer all mode multi band uh, kind of uh, uh, rigs that, that do everything uh, really handy to have that power when you need it. And it's often dialable. You can adjust it high and low. Higher power, 1KW or more, is uh, often needed if you're, go of course, is really needed when you're going to be uh, working really weak signals, um, far away line of sight type of communications, and especially EME, Earth, Moon, Earth uh, type. You need that, that kind of power. To maximize that line of sight um, communications that you've got on a direct uh, um, uh, direct frequency to frequency type of of, of communications, safety wise, you want to be sure that, especially with the higher power, this is really really important, and we would be remiss if we didn't underscore it with uh, with that really really important uh, line, is that uh, you want to make sure that you don't get near a transmitted RF signal in the VHF and especially in the VHF or in the UHF range. Think of your microwave. You all heard have heard of the the terrible joke about putting a, a cat in in a microwave or or you know, tin foil or something. It's that that microwave is in is in the UHF range of some of our is in the frequency range of some of our UHF transmitters. And um, I'm not sure what the power is in those. It's not terribly substantial. But you take a lot of power, like a kilowatt, and you pump it through a high-gain uh, antenna, your effective radiated power is huge. And you could fry a cat, you could fry a brain if you're not careful. Make sure, especially, of course, if you homebrew stuff on your bench, 
in a VHF and especially UHF that you make sure that you operate it with all of the shielding, the, the, the grounded, shielded sides of the sub boxes that contain the transmitted, uh, um, uh, the active components of your transmitter, or make make sure it's well shielded and locked up because you could easily hurt yourself seriously by uh, testing stuff on the bench that's not uh, that's not properly shielded. Does somebody have a question along the way here? Okay, now feed line loss is another thing that's really important. Uh, we talked before in, in our session about four months, five months ago perhaps, called feed line frenzy. Um, we concentrated, of course, on good feed lines for HF. Now, I reproduced some of the diagrams here for this session here to illustrate that uh, uh, the greater need for um, good feed lines and what, what, what good means is low loss. Um, good uh, dielectric and, and low ohmic loss is going to be best for a VHF because it's just uh, more of a, of a lossy type of uh, condition. You'll see the chart is a, the one that says uh, coaxial cable loss in dB per 100 feet. The lower, the lower lines, the ones that are more horizontal toward the bottom, um, and especially as you go out in the 400 to uh, 1 gigahertz um, um, frequency is really, really important. Um, actually, no, that's not. I did that again. I did that again. I think that's distance. Um, the low loss, the low loss signals, the low loss coaxes are going to be the lower ones that are more horizontal, and you can see that from the from the graph. The best coax shown there uh, is LDF six fifty. Joe, I just bought some um, some good coax. Do you remember what the uh, the rating of it was? What was the name of it? LMR or something? The LMR four hundred, but I don't remember the rating. Okay, so I made a special effort to get good coax, and I replaced a standard length of uh, 8x. I had 8x going out to a, uh, a two-meter Ringo Ranger, and I had poor poor transmission. Um, I did not have a lot of great success. I put the better coax on there, and the next the weekly session of our little our uh, a local uh, simplex net on Friday nights, and uh, the apparent it was very apparent that I had a much better transmitting system. So uh, coax makes a lot of makes a lot of you uh, makes a lot of difference. And we put another version of that coax chart. I I uh, honed it down to be the uh, the ones that are of interest to us. So you want to check out the the coaxes that have low attenuation at um, higher frequencies, such as 400 megahertz, especially, and then uh, you know, buy accordingly. It's going to cost a little bit more. Hardline is a good example of the ultimate. Uh, and Joe was explaining how hardline, good hardline has a, a spiraling foam dielectric. The more air that's actually in separating the center conductor from the shield, the higher the dielectric, the better the insulation, uh, the isolation of the signal, and hence the better uh, job that that coax does. And that's an expensive thing. But that, if you have a run of 100, 200 feet out to an antenna, and it maybe goes another 100 foot up to the antenna at the top of the tower, you really need that kind of uh, care and attention to the feed line. Now, antenna types, um, I think we categorized uh, 
we categorize the antennas, Joe and I, to um, those being verticals. Um, and uh, the most common vertical, I think, is the quarter wave vertical. And I actually used that antenna and constructed in that exact same manner using an SO239 UHF connector with the four holes there holding the radials bent down at about 45 degrees and uh, coat hanger rods at that uh, frequency. I used that in college and it was really, really good for hitting the local repeaters. Really, really nice. Uh, if you go to a five weights, a five eighths wave vertical, you get some gain out of it. And, uh, but it, <clears throat> it's a relatively straightforward uh, uh, construction and J poles are, are also very, very easy and pretty darn effective too. And just about at any frequency, one of the uh, kind of an interesting uh, characteristic of these antennas is that they work equally well at two meters at uh, um, 70 centimeters or 440 meg or 23 centimeters, um, which is 1.2 gig. So uh, generally uh, these antennas work pretty well, whether it's a Yagi or um, a J-pole or a ground plane. Um, you want the higher gain if you can get it. And that Yagi down below um, that's uh, shown on a wooden boom, is that's what I have in partial construction right here in the basement. If I'm lucky, I'll be able to get it done in time for the NJQRP meeting this Saturday. I'll be bringing it and be able to demonstrate it. Uh, really simple. In fact, we've got the plans for that down in the reference section. And I think I even uh, sketched it out. Uh, I copied the uh, uh, the dimensions for it. A uh, piece of one by two, you know, maybe about six foot or so, one by two wood. And actually, it was not that particular one, but nonetheless, it's the same principle. And you get a bunch of aluminum, um, solid aluminum rod. This is all Home Depot stuff. And bend it in a certain manner, solder up your coax, and boom, you're 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 on the air. Quads were kind of an interesting antenna back in the uh, early days. Earlier days, uh, um, I, I, they're probably still pretty popular. I mean, I, I say the early days. Um, CB, yeah, I mean, CB was really CBers were really interested in cube quads. They looked cool, and and they were actually good antennas. Uh, and that's a good antenna for, uh, again, any kind of a, a frequency that we're talking about. Now, something that Joe and I really uh, latched onto when we started experimenting with communicating between our two distant, our, our two states, was the uh, the Moxon. The Moxon is a is an easy antenna to build. It's got some good gain. It's small because it's like a folded uh, uh, folded dipole and reflector, and you can see it there. Uh, diagrammatically, um, in the first diagram with the A, B, C, D, E dimensions, just use the dimensions. And there's a formula in the reference that we have for whatever frequency that you're trying to uh, actually build it for. And you can see me, at least uh, maybe a, a year and a half to two years ago, I was I looked a lot different than I do right now. But I'm holding my Moxon in my right hand, and you can actually, this is at one of our club meetings, um, made with PVC tubing and uh, bent aluminum, um, um, uh, angle aluminum from Home Depot, some um, angle, uh, what do you call it, uh, molded, molded angle, molded, 90 degree molded uh, wood, actually has laminated stuff that separate the two, yet still give it some good rigidity. There's the uh, the choke that Joe was referring to earlier, 
that's, uh, that isolates the antenna, uh, the transmitted signal from the feed line. And it's, it's a, a really simple thing to build. I think I built it in one, one day once I had all the parts together. And uh, it worked pretty well. Joe and I did some field measurements on it. We just couldn't find a lot of people to talk with on on, uh, on six meters. And an interesting aspect, and, and there's probably, we have more information, more construction information about the Moxon than anything else here. Um, it's an easy thing to do. If you get yourself a couple of uh, um, those extendable fiberglass uh, rods, uh, fishing rods, uh, they're called crappies, or just fiberglass extension poles and put them in an X form and around the X you would have um, the X you would have a perimeter of uh, of uh, wire and of course you separate the wire at the, the points indicated in the diagram and you've got yourself a simple um, a wire moxon. Joe I think you built one like that didn't you? Yeah I did at one point um, yeah in fact I think I did a two meter one there is, um, and there is info on that, I believe, in one of the references we've included. That's kind of a neat way to go for something simple to throw together for a field day. Indeed, for field day. And then the next one down, I'm not sure it's seven, uh, W7ZOI's antenna or that's just his comment, but uh, it's a wood boom Yagi that I was talking about. Uh, I'm building that one, that seven element Yagi for two meters. And you can see how it's just that one by two slat it um, or one by two um, uh, boom of wood one by two piece of wood and it's got the solid aluminum it's flattened with screws going through it and the coax is connected to it and uh, bent around one side the driven element I guess you can see it I get yeah I guess that's the top one the top photograph the one that uh, the, the sentence finishes up, end of the aluminum rod is hammered flat to make drilling easier. That uh, What's shown there is the looped around portion of the driven element that um, is used for, for matching, matching purposes. That's a for, I believe that's a form of a gamma uh, matching element, is it not, Joe? It's actually a kind of a folded monopole. The beauty of it is is that the shield goes to the center of the, um, the dipole element, and the coax goes to the uh, looped around element. Um, the the looped around uh, hairpin there gives you a uh, an impedance a step up um, to take a, to uh, give you a fair match to 50 ohms, uh, since the driven element, the dipole, with the uh, uh, reflectors and the uh, director close by, tend to reduce the impedance of the uh, of the dipole. So it does both antenna matching and gives you the uh, balanced to unbalanced uh, uh, facility. Now, I haven't gotten to the tuning part yet, but I would imagine tuning is maybe done by moving the feed point, uh, well, the connection, two connections points for the coax uh, further um, in or out from that uh, where shown. Well, something like that, yeah. You'd actually have to shorten both both ends so that you have a balanced antenna, both uh, the same length on both both sides of the center. Yeah, okay. Um, we didn't mention it, but it's really important to have um, a VHF uh, SWR meter, power in SWR meter, or at least an SWR meter. Now, many of us have like a million 
uh, well, a lot of SWR meters are on the shack. I do. And they all tend to be good up to 30 megahertz or so. And um, curiously, at least on the rigs that I've seen, the all-mode, all-banders do not have SWR, built-in SWR meters or ATUs for the antenna tuning unit for the VHF and UHF band. You must usually, at least on the ones I've seen, you need to rely on external SWR and power, well, SWR and uh, tuning units for your uh, for your VHF rigs. Now, normally tuning units are not are not used in uh, VHF UHF because your antennas are generally cut for a very specific band, and and there's no tuning that would be done, and at which they tend to be lossy at these frequencies, anyways. So, um, but you do need an SWR meter. I happen to be looking at an older uh, Swan Electronics. That's a popular one back when, uh, SWR-1A. And I looked that, up that spec, and it's good up to uh, 150 megahertz. So I'm fortunate in that I could use that. And indeed, I needed that while adjusting my system, my two-meter system. And I'll certainly need to get something else when I'm checking the uh, my construction for the my 440 megahertz uh uh, 70 centimeter antennas. Now the last antenna that we have here to discuss tonight is uh, the J-pole. The J-pole, you've seen pictures up at, um, up above. I mean, a couple, a very popular one is uh, using a couple of uh, um, copper pipes with uh, joint 90 degree uh, joints that form a, a J, and then you can attach your coax to it uh, as shown. And it's it's pretty rugged, and you can you can mount that thing up on a, uh, uh, the top of your house. Pretty um, if you can get up to the top of the house or whatever, you can you can uh, it, it's not that visible. It, it's not uh, too prominent. But if you want something, what we did is we picked another simple to build antenna, and we provided specs on it here and instructions on how to build it. Uh, is a, two, a combination 2 meter and 70 meter. That's 144 megahertz and 440 megahertz um, J pole made out of twin lead, 300 ohm twin uh, TV twin lead. And if you cut that uh, 50, roughly 50 inch um, length of, of twin lead, and then you cut it and combine it, and, and, and as shown in the diagram. You'll uh, you'll have an antenna that is resonant at that is able to be used at both of those frequencies, and um, as typical with J pole, you have some gain. Joe, what what is the gain, the rough gain um, that one can achieve with a J pole? <laughs> it's a matter of some conjecture. It's basically a half wave uh, radiator, so it's six dB isotropic, or maybe three dB over a uh, a ground plane antenna. So it's better than a ground plane, and I think that's probably, and then even a ground plane up in the air is going to be a boatload better than your HT rubber ducky. So I think, you know, most of us are familiar with the small, shortened, compromised antennas that would be a miracle to radiate. And uh, and, and thankfully, it's enough to radiate to local trans uh, local repeater. But if you're trying to get any kind of distance, if you're trying to get any kind of performance, and certainly any kind of weak signal over a greater distance, you're going to need a different kind of antenna. So you want to consider something like this. You can go over to Cushcraft and get, or actually, you know, like uh, uh, HRO 
or AES Electronics or whatever, or AES uh, Amateur Radio Supply, and get yourself a, a Cushcraft antenna and, uh, for like $150 if you're if you're lucky, and you know it's all aluminum and all of that sort of stuff. Or you can get yourself a wooden boom, some aluminum rod, and measure off the distances. And it's really quite easy if you pay attention to some dimensions to make yourself antennas that you can use, that are usable, quite usable, on uh, VHF, and start experimenting. I mean, again, most of us have these kinds of rigs, and it wouldn't take anything. Well, it wouldn't take much to get yourself uh, a little bit more coax and a good coax, a length of you know. 50 length, a 50 foot length of good coax, and uh, make yourself a, a, an antenna uh, per one of the diagrams here. Get yourself um, an SWR meter. You can find them on eBay, and you know just look for a, an SWR meter that's good up up to the top end that you're looking for, um, and just to you know allow you to tune it up and get on the air. I think you'll be amazed by the performance improvement that you can see uh, with your uh, with your radio, even if you're using a ducky. I mean, you get yourself an SMA, SMC, whatever the connector is that goes into the top of your HT, and get that adapter and put it to the LMR coax, that uh, the good coax that you want to get. And uh, amazing that the one watt that you have in the HT is going to uh, uh, get out much more solid into the repeater. Uh, if you do this 2-meter, 7-centimeter J-pole, you can hang that and from a tree outside, and nobody's going to notice that, and um, have that coming into the house, and you'll have yourself a nice uh, a nice antenna. So we covered a lot of ground, and by I want to stress that um, by no means are we the authoritative uh, and source of information and on VHF type of operation. This is a general broad stroke overview. It is. Uh, intended to help guide you as far as understanding what's going on, the basic principles, and give you some pointers relative to how you might be able to improve your signal uh, coming from your HT, coming from your all-mode, all-band, multi-bander, Yoohoo kind of uh, um, uh, commercial rig, and maybe start using some of these bands up on, on your uh, that you have available to you. And experiment and get on the get on the air and and it's just boatloads of fun to fun to do that. Uh, Joe, do you want to kind of take it from here? Certainly. Yeah, we try to give a um, kind of a restless uh, rush through here, giving um, some of the reasons for um, why why we want to communicate on VHF. Touched on the different types of uh, operations that uh, we do, ranging from the simple uh, Handheld radios operating on VHF or UHF FM through repeaters that are uh, relatively simple um, and uh, suffice, for a lot, suffice for a lot of the amateur radio operation. And by way of background, we also talked about um, some of the weak signal type uh, operation uh, in terms of uh, the difference from uh, simple uh, portable or mobile operation with FM. Uh, with the idea that uh, the types of antennas you'd use and the uh, techniques you'd use are different, um, whereas most VHF is line of sight, uh, VHF, UHF, um, you're operating with some infrastructure with the FM and repeaters, whereas for the uh, weak signal stuff, 
you have to have a little more sophisticated antennas and um, equipment and uh, feed line uh, techniques in order to um, to get the optimum performance. Along the way, we uh, provided um, a, a snapshot of a tool that can be used to estimate uh, propagation on VHF at the various frequencies that you can plug in information for um, antenna heights, uh, feed line loss, operating power, and frequency uh, that takes into account the, uh, the local um, terrain to give you an estimate of what your success for propagation will be. And uh, we finished up with um, a broad stroke view of a variety of antennas, VHF uh, antennas, ranging from the simple um, uh, simple ground plane antenna and J-pole antennas that are relatively easy to do, usable for um, uh, FM operation, uh, ranging to um, some Yagis and Moxons, which uh, form the basis for uh, a little more gain and more sophisticated operation for um, EME and um, some of the uh, other propagation methods for uh, weak signal work. There is also a good list of references at the end of the, uh, the white page. I recommend all of you uh, save off the white page and look at that list of references. It'll give you a lot more reading and uh, much more information. Fill out uh, uh, what we don't have time to discuss here. Uh, we tried to give you an introduction and recommend that uh, you look into this stuff to, uh, to get an optimum antenna for whatever you want to do on uh, VHF. Uh, question from Clint. Clint, A7 uh, OEI, I see your uh, push to talk light blinking. Okay, uh, Pete, WP2QLL, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, just an observation here. I don't have a great deal of interest in uh, VHF at the moment, but there is a little bit of local six-meter uh, sideband activity, and uh, not wishing to spend basically the money for the coax was the most important, the most expensive part of the project. Uh, some years ago, I glommed on to the MFJ six-meter antenna tuner, and MFJ does make six-meter and two-meter antenna tuners, has for years. And I am using this with my open wire fed V-beam, horizontal non-resonant, uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, horizontal resonant V-beam. And it works reasonably well. It'd be better if it was taller than 30 feet off the ground, of course, but it does, uh, it does work and matches perfectly for local operations. Good point. Yeah, yeah a lot of folks do that and uh, have a fair amount of success. Use what you got uh, if you're not... Uh, not going to be going for DX. Good idea. Good idea. Go ahead, Rick. Yeah, one other thing. Uh, I think you had have a very good presentation this evening. I've enjoyed it. You might also want to mention the uh, use of and availability of uh, beacons on VHF and UHF for uh, monitoring propagation conditions and for your antenna testing. That is a good point. Yeah, we didn't uh, didn't get into that level of detail, but yes, there are um, beacons and um, beacons around on most of the, at least the VHF bands, um, as well as some of the HF bands. That's a good way to tell when a uh, when there is an opening to a certain air to a given area. And um, George and I have used some of the local beacons 
There's one down in Baltimore, and there's at least one in Philly to try to gauge our success on six meters. Haven't tried it on 10 meters, but it is an excellent way to go. If you can hear the beacon, you stand a chance of uh, being able to work somebody in um, in that location. John uh, Zettel and AZS. Yeah, interesting session. My goodness, there's so much to learn. As um, my friend Terence used to say, you can't go back and you can't stand still if the thunder don't get you, the lightning will. <laughs> Just a sidelight, I have never worked at VK or ZL, but I've been at a buddy's shack um, when six meters was hot. And he was actually working VKs and ZLs on six meters a couple solar cycles ago on sideband with amazingly strong signals from the from the east coast here of the U.S. Okay, George, why don't you tie the ribbons on? All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank good 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 wrap up, uh, Joe. Thanks. And I um, hope everybody enjoyed the show tonight. Uh, we, Joe and I, enjoyed uh, putting it together and, and chatting about the, the topics here. Um, we'll see you all in two weeks. And uh, thank you for your suggestions for topic. Uh, RFI, um, finding and minimizing, uh, tends to be, uh, uh, looks like it's an interesting topic. We'll give some thought of maybe we could put together some uh, relevant information and equipment and procedures and see what we might be able to come up with. So we'll announce that uh, a little bit later on. So thanks all one again, uh, once again for tuning in tonight. We'll see you back on the next session of Chat with the Designers.